Welcome to the SDA Housing Podcast, brought to you by NDIS Property Australia. Before starting this episode, we need to provide a general disclaimer. Information contained in this podcast is general in nature only. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person. You need to consider your financial situation and needs before making any decisions based on the information in this podcast. And you should consider seeking independent and professional advice for your personal circumstances. All right, let's begin. Welcome to today's episode. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that today's topic may be sensitive to some listeners. We will be delving into the Kennedy versus NDIA case and the implications from the outcome. Let's begin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the NDIS Property Australia podcast. You're here with Emilita from the office, and I am here with Dante from Adapt Housing. Hi, Melina. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. So right now we're sitting in Adapt Headquarters. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're in Adapt Headquarters right now. And this is part two of our episode series. (laughs) So part one was episode 10 of the podcast that you're currently listening to. And part one was all about the NDIS application process, the SDA application process, funding outcomes and a bit about the appeal process. But today we're going to go a little bit deeper into more of a case study. So we're going to be focusing on the case Kennedy versus the NDIA, which is actually a really important case for NDIS participants who are seeking funding. So yeah, Dante, would you like to just give Anyone who hasn't listened to episode 10, just a brief overview of who you are, what you do. Yeah, sure. So I suppose really, really quickly, I work for Adapt Housing. So Adapt, we're based here in Brisbane and we're an SDA provider. So we work with builders, participants, care providers all across Australia to help try and find purpose-built and suitable accommodation for participants on the SDA. So yeah, it's, I suppose it's really, really good and I'm happy to be here and happy to talk about this momentous case that was you know really, really great, I suppose, the outcome in the end. And it's it was an important one. It was definitely good to see the outcome that came of it. Brilliant. All right. So before we go into discussing the case, in the our previous episode, we spoke about the application process for NDIS participants to get SDA funding. So if you haven't already checked that out, those who are listening, do check out that episode because it goes really deep into that. It does seem like a very in-depth process where a lot of you know, proving why you need that funding is required. Would you agree? Yeah, no, for sure. It, it really co- coincides with their goals that are outlined in their plan um, mm-hmm. and also the housing report that's, you know, has their goals laid out in it and what they wish to achieve by getting SDA in their plan. Brilliant. Okay, well, this this case definitely shows, illustrates that to whoever is listening. All right, so do you want to give us an overview of what this case was about? Yeah, of course. So, uh, it was a gentleman down in Victoria. Uh, he was approached for shared funding, so house funding, which was you know around that forty thousand dollar mark. And basically, what that meant was the NDIA. After he went through the process of applying for SDA, you know, he outlined his goals and his needs and just exactly what he, he wishes to get out of uh, SDA, and that was to be able to have that greater independence, to be able to see his two children, have shared custody, work from home, you know, all the things that 
a man wishes to do and be able to do in the privacy of his own home. Mm-hmm. Uh, the NDIA turned around and said, well, no, you can actually share with another individual in a house setting. So, yeah. you know, this, it was distressing. It was hard on him. And uh, he decided to go down the process of, of fighting and appealing this, which is, I suppose, what we're talking about today and yeah. uh, the process that is that. So it's not an easy process. It's, it's tough. It's, it's long. You know, mm-hmm. it can be up, upwards of 12 months, this process. But, you know, he's persevered. And uh, luckily, the, the tribunal and the independent body that mm-hmm. assess these court cases uh, have seen, I suppose, past uh, the NDIA's funding allocation and realize that, you know, he is an independent, he's got children, mm-hmm. he needs the extra room, he needs the space, he needs the privacy, and therefore they've awarded him what he originally applied for. Yeah, amazing. And regarding this person's specific circumstances, you already touched on some of it, but uh, what I understand is he got approved initially for the two-bedroom, two-bathroom sharing with another person in a house, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, and then what he actually wanted was a two-bedroom, two-bathroom like apartment living by himself? Yeah, so they, they call it a two-bedroom, one-resident apartment setting. Uh-huh. So, um, whereas obviously yeah, he was funded for a, a two-bedroom, two-resident yeah. house funding amount. Okay, so essentially what he wanted was to have one bedroom to sleep in and then another bedroom for certain reasons, which w- let's let's talk about the reason. So, what was this person-specific circumstances that had him requiring this level of funding, this extra bedroom. So his, his main, I suppose, argument behind needing a second bedroom was well, one of the two main ones was, you know, he was he was active in the community in terms of he is a, an Indigenous uh, First Nations mm-hmm. gentleman who is part of the Stolen Generation, so he does a lot of work for the local communities in that sense. And he's also got two children that he, he wants, he wanted the second bedroom, I suppose, to be able to have shared custody, mm-hmm. to be able to see his kids more because the current living arrangements and the arrangements that have been funded by the NDIA really limited, if not prevented him from being able to see his children in the setting that is most suitable for him. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. So what was the rationale behind the NDIA's decision not to provide that level of funding to him? So one of the biggest things was they always try and justify why it is you need that second bedroom. So across the few years that ADAPT's been operating, we've come across a very, very limited number of individuals who have been approved for that two-bedroom, one-resident apartment funding. Mm-hmm. You know, It's the highest that you can get in terms of the price guide. Mm-hmm. And really, out of the individuals that we've seen, you know, they've either been lawyers who have had an accident or you know, they run their own successful business, they're New York best-time best seller authors. So... Mm-hmm. I suppose in the eyes of the NDIA, they're always trying to look at the reasoning behind why do you need that second bedroom. Yeah. And in the cases, they, they looked at these individuals who used it for work and they go, well, in a way, they can almost justify paying for that additional room. So really, really crucial thing that they used, I suppose, as a resistance against the applicant's claim uh, was a clause, it's called Clause 85 or Appendix G. Mm-hmm. So in there, it says shared living arrangements, including people who are not eligible on the NDIA can really be paying for the second bedroom. So they're contending that an STA in a single bedroom mm-hmm. can live in a one be- one bedroom apartment mm-hmm. rather than the two. Because end of the day, he they end up trying to settle early and saying, well, okay, how about a one bedroom? But he said, no, I still need the second bedroom. You know, mm-hmm. this is for my family, this is me for me to see my kids. Little should not realize that you know the children can't pay rent this second room. Can you clarify that bit again? That clause G. Can you? Because I'm I'm still catching up with that. So. What does that mean? Like, can you, very simple terms. Yeah, so Appendix G, so it's on a case-by-case, but in short, it means that the person who is not an SDA-eligible participant must make a contribution to the right. cost of the second bedroom. 
understood. So, okay, yes, I remember now. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, to clarify for anybody, uh, for, for those who are listening, one of the main reasons that he wanted the second bedroom was, of course, to have shared custody as his children, as we've said. And then now the NDIA have said, well, the second bedroom, people who live in there would need to pay for it. And then they've, the tribunal's gone back and said, well, how are two children meant to pay for yeah. the room? Okay. Yeah. So they've tried to settle on a one bedroom and resident apartment. Yeah. You know, uh, lower funding, but that second bedroom. Mm-hmm. You know, the tribunal's gone, well, no, kids can't pay rent. Yeah, and absolutely. So that, that's where they've kind of been. So the tribunal agreed with the, the applicants contesting, saying that. <laughs> I can't expect my children to pay rent for the second bedroom. So. Of course, yeah. And that's what it is. It's it's shared living arrangements with people who are not SDA eligible. So mm-hmm. some scenarios we have uh, participants on the SDA, but then they have a family member who will stay in the second bedroom, but will mm-hmm. pay you know, an additional reasonable rent sort of arrangement. That's all case by case. But yeah, really, he, he justified that this additional bedroom mm-hmm. was for his children to be able to come and stay and you know, for him to work out of it as well. Yeah. Yeah, so I want to I want to go deeper into the rationale behind the tribunal's decision to grant him that one participant two bedroom apartment. But before that, was there any other rationale behind the NDIA's decision not to, other than what we've already stated that Appendix G cost cutting as well? I suppose you know, in terms of the SDA funding, mm-hmm. the government, have, in terms of an approved budget, seven hundred million. Mm-hmm. They're only spending about $200 million. It's budgetary constraints that they're facing at the moment just due to other funding allocations within the NDIS. So, right. you know, we've had we've heard comments adapt from NDIA and all that stating that they're not giving out these one-to-one fundings. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not approving them as regularly at the moment. Right. It's a lot of shared funding. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, just pretty much using from their end what they've told us mm-hmm. and what the market's looking like, That's that seems to be where they were heading. But you know, this this tribunal case is momentous and it, it could be a turning point in the space. Absolutely. Momentous. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's 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 talk about what the rationale behind the tribunal's decision was. So we've already spoken about, you know, the fact that the children aren't going to be able to pay for the room, yeah. obviously. What other reasons were there? Well, I suppose if you're looking at who the tribunal are, so they're an independent body mm-hmm. that, you know, they act on behalf of the people. Yeah. Really, in this court case, it was the NDIA versus the people mm-hmm. being, you know, the SDA participants in the tribunal always going to look at it, not necessarily from the monetary value and certainly not from the eyes of the NDIA. Mm-hmm. They hear it from the NDIA's perspective, but they also hear it from the participants' perspective. Absolutely. We hear a lot of stories and a lot of cases where, you know, and the NDIA have said that the SDA scheme is not set up for families, really. Right. It's set up for independent or independent individuals. Mm-hmm. Yes, may have a family, but unfortunately, they're not taken into consideration to an extent when they're pr- when they're providing this funding. Yeah. So it's really hard. Like house a house setting, house one resident doesn't exist. House yeah. two residents really your minimum. So you know, a gentleman who has a family, you know, has a wife, has two kids, a dog, mm-hmm. um, but it gets funded for house three residents. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's not practical for him to live with his family in another in a house with two other individuals. Absolutely. So, you know, they go through the tribunal process and. They try and get this higher funding amount so that they can potentially use it and apply it. So at Adapt, I suppose what we do is we work closely with investors as well as participants who have this funding amount to try and flexibly apply it in various scenarios. So, you know, there might be a duplex available. That's two, three-bedroom uh, duplex. You know, obviously that's a funding amount of 
the two participants fully funded. Mm-hmm. However, this participant who's got a higher amount of funding, we can actually apply to the lesser of the two amounts being the, the enrolled value of the dwelling and the funding amount of the participant. Mm-hmm. And when we can sort of negotiate with the investor to go, hey, this is their funding amount. They've got a family. You know, is this something that you'll consider just as the one participant moving in with his family? Yeah. Wife, again, could sometimes pay an additional reasonable rent. She's mm-hmm. working. But if she, you know, it, it's really a case by case. Another property we're just working with at the moment, they're not money driven in any sense. So mm-hmm. they've built an improved livability home mm-hmm. and they've said to us, listen, you know, we're, we're about to go, we're moving out, we're going somewhere else. All we want in here is just a family. Right. We're happy with just a family. Mm-hmm. You know, just whoever's funded, it's great, but they're targeting really those individuals who have a family who can't find. Yeah, so yeah. it's really, really nice to see and speak to individuals like that who, you know, consider it from their point of view. You know, you're being told by the government that you have to share with individuals, or sorry, with with strangers, yeah. uh, other individuals, when really, you know, some people are happy to, don't get me wrong, like mm-hmm. we've got participants who want to share. You know, they're young, they want to interact, they want mm-hmm. to socialise. Absolutely. But those who are a little bit older and, you know, they want that independence, they want that privacy. So Absolutely. it's hard when the government turns around and says, well, no, you've still got to share with with other strangers so yeah it's the kind of battles you, you face day in day out wow there's a lot to it and it, mm. it sounds like this this case is this is why we're having the conversation mm. because this case is momentous as you said yeah, yeah well let, let's keep going let's go into yeah. it a bit more because what i understand is that there was there's a big emphasis on on quality of life right inclusion in the community you know, living life yeah. you know as close to what's the word here like well allied health and uh, yeah you know, your community access and... But in terms of like living a life that, you know, the, one of the reasons behind, you know, this support and the the NDIS, is it the plan? The plan? Oh, I suppose, yeah, is to integrate within the community. Exactly. Integrate yeah. in, within the community and live as close to a normal life as possible, right? Yeah. So the fact that, you know, the NDIA, it, it seems like it's set up for, for that, like people who live in share housing the current structure is that am i hearing you right yeah well it kind of it was created off the back of a lot of uh what they're called well it's now called legacy stock so these were your your group homes with five six residents so those participants a lot of them have been living in these group homes that are five five to six participants and they're going to hopefully be grandfathered across Mm -hmm. it's still a while away um those participants but that was the intention to get these people out of these institutional like Mm -hmm. houses and give them that greater options and flexibility and really the, the key phrase that the NDIA use is choice and control. Choice and control. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, another big argument or point that was made in this case is choice and control. Where is the choice and control Absolutely. for this individual to choose where he lives if he's been restricted by this funding amount? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so there was, there was other parts to it. So the impact if he didn't get that outcome, I have some things listed, but you know, I want to hear from you. What What do you think? Like, he obviously would have had a big trouble, like a lot of trouble trying to have a relationship with his two children. Oh, it would have been stressful, no doubt. Yeah. And I can only imagine what, what the outcome would have been if it was, mm-hmm. you know, the other end of the scale. And it's, yeah, really, I, I could only imagine the stress just alone the process would have put him through. And if he were to be knocked back, you know, he definitely seems like the gentleman who wouldn't have given up fighting, mm-hmm. that's for sure. You know, he mm-hmm. seems, you know, he's, he's strong. He's strong-minded really too, so he would have kept fighting. And, you know, in in our sense, I suppose, from that, we would have worked closely along with the likes of Greg Berry and all that who was doing the appeal. Mm-hmm. We're working closely with them to find some sort of accommodation because that's the other thing. We work closely with the investors to, I suppose, say, accept the participants on a lower amount of funding mm-hmm. with the intention 
that they're going through the appeal, that they're going to get that higher amount of funding. So, you know, it's it's that flexibility again between working with participants and the investors of these properties that they wish to live in. Yeah, for sure. And understand part of his, is it called a care plan, an NDIS care plan? What's the technical, the terminology for that? So, in terms of what, how to pr- improve their quality of life. So just, yeah, the, their NDIS plan. NDIS plan. Yeah, so one of the major things to assist this gentleman was to have the relationship with his children, also the space for him to set up a computer to be a mentor in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, and as well as storage for his wheelchairs, physiotherapy equipment, and the space for carers who need to stay overnight. So mm. I'm pretty sure that was another big part of why the tribunal said, well, you know, it makes sense to have that extra. Yeah, if he's deteriorating as well over the next few years and, you know, if it's a degenerative condition, they need to be able to provide the care on overnight. site overnight yeah. 24-7. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I suppose if he didn't get that outcome, that would have majorly impacted his quality of life. Mm, for sure. Yeah. You know, it would have uh, had a detrimental impact, impact on the cares that he needed. Absolutely, yeah. So why is this appeal so important as a precedent? So. How does it relate to challenges that participants have faced with obtaining suitable funding? I suppose it, in a way it provides hope that it is doable. As mentioned earlier, it's it's a long process and it is stressful, but those who persevere and those who stick by by it and through the process, you know, they're coming out on top that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of pushback by the NDIA and there's a lot of resistance by them to allow this funding amount, but mm-hmm. again, if they want to stick by their terms, they're saying of choice and control, then... The participants, of course, are going to fight for that choice and control. So mm-hmm. it's a precedent that's been set that we're hoping sees a turn in the number of participants regaining hope because we speak to a lot of participants day in, day out who receive a low amount of funding. And, you know, only a small handful actually decide to go through with this process just based on how, you know, the process that they've already gone through to get SCA in their plan. You know, for some of these individuals who weren't even on the NDIS, it's supplements of two years. Wow. So. Is that including the tribunal? No, not even including the tribunal. So just to become, you know, there's almost a wait list to get onto the NDIS. Mm -hmm. Once you become an NDIS member, then you have to again apply for STA. Mm -hmm. So by the time you're at that that point, it could be two years and then you've got to go through potentially another 12 months if you're not getting the outcome that's going to be best suited. So we're seeing a lot just accept their funding and see what they can get with it. You know, we've seen participants who have just ended up having to stay where they are if it's in Department of Housing you know, aged care facilities, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's horrible, but some just, you know, it, it's difficult on them. So you, you can't push them any more than they've, they've already gone through. Absolutely. So what I'm hearing is that the tribunal, tribunals generally turn out positively, but there is a really hard process to get there. Is that? Yeah. So generally what we're seeing, we're seeing positive outcomes from the tribunal, but again, it's, it's still very little data just based on how a uh, few have gone through and completed the process. Mm-hmm. And we know a lot of pe- individuals going through the process, but those who have actually received an outcome, mm-hmm. it's been very few to kind of collect substantial data. But from what we have seen, mm-hmm. similar to this case, that the outcome has been positive and yeah. it has been worthwhile their time. Mm-hmm. It's just those who stick by and persevere. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think you've already, we've already sort of spoke about it, but now that we have, now that participants have this case as a precedent, do you think that? will contribute to more positive outcome in the future with re- relation to funding applications here? There, there is a chance that you, obviously this will be a turning point. As mentioned, it, it'll be hope to a lot of these participants to see that, you know, it's doable. It's, it's been done. It can be done. Mm-hmm. 
and I have no doubt that uh, many lawyers representing participants uh, going through the process will have their hands all over this court case and will be pulling to pieces and seeing what they did, how they did it, what they said. And yeah, I definitely think that this will this will be a key key factor uh, for the next few months in terms of those going through the through the tribunal and the process. And yeah, hopefully we see more positive outcomes like this one. Yes, amazing. Yes, hope for the future, hope for the NDIS participants. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dante. Is there any anything else that you'd like to cover before? No, I, I think I think we've pretty much covered it all. But as mentioned, yeah, it's it's been amazing to see the outcome of this this case and do hope that it, it, it sets a good precedent and it really encaptures that whole choice of control and participants wanting to be able to be reintegrated, I suppose, or integrated into the community. So it's it's a really positive outcome and look forward to reading and seeing a lot more of it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dante. And thank you, everybody who's listening. And we'll catch you on the next episode. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please make sure you are subscribed and following us so you can keep in the loop with all of our upcoming episodes. We would really appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star rating, a written review, and to share this podcast with those that could benefit. Until next time, catch you on the next episode.